unapologetically confessional, unabashedly intellectual, taking the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, your online somewhat informed conversation about literature, theology, philosophy, and other things that human beings do well. Your hosts are Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Centered on silence, counting on nothing, I saw you standing on the sea. And everything was dark except for... Welcome all to the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is David Grubbs, your host this week. Um, with me this week, like last week, like the week before that, like many, many weeks before that, is Michael Farmer, who is in Florida. How are things in Florida, Michael? Warmer than they are in Georgia, anyway. <laughs> yeah, we had a little bit of a winter storm. Um, and how how is that up in uh, North Georgia there, Nathan? Oh, I, you were here too, weren't you? I, don't you teach on Tuesdays? Yeah, but I don't know what it looks like today. Oh, okay. I mean, I probably, well, I, I drove through Athens, so about the same. Okay, okay. So no no accumulation, just a bunch of scary big flakes yesterday. Beautiful backwoods, Franklin Springs, Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Nathan, I used to work at that uh, sleep in right on the interstate there in Franklin. I guess that's in Livonia. Yeah, I was going to say, I know the place you're talking about because I head out there when I need to pick someone up at the airport. But right next, yeah, to, I know the, the place. Right next to the strip club. I don't know that place. Uh, I would hope not. They may not be there anymore. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. Update from last week. Um, have we had? I guess have we have we had any reader feedback? Um, we had and- one one message from Andrew Renz this morning on my post as a follow up to the Brian McLaren interview. Uh, okay. I'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, probably in next week's episode because I haven't had a chance to really read and process it yet. Okay, okay. Um, also, uh, you know, just to let our listeners know, our uh, our blog is up and we do post regularly. Uh, Nathan has his lectionary for Monday um, in which he makes some jabs at us uh, Calvinist. At least that's the part I remember because it's stung. <laughs> um, Only this week. <laughs> And then uh, very, 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 very late last night, I did my, uh, my Anglo-Saxon saint thing. And, uh, and Nathan, you're on again today with uh, a follow-up to uh, your, I guess, follow-up to the McLaren book review. Yes, and today's post is called Why Getting Plato Right Matters. And I, I just oh. want to plug it. I think it's an excellent post, actually better than the book review, which I also um, enjoyed yeah, quite thoroughly. So... Yeah, me, me too. I was following it closely. Um, all right, I guess we can uh, we can get to today's topic. Um, inspired by Literary Hill, um, I thought it would be interesting if we could pursue some other uh, biblical themes and biblical narratives uh, as, as they iterate through the literature that that we've received in uh, sort of the Western canon. Um, and so today we're going to be looking at the story of creation, uh, particularly that presented in uh, the the first chapters of Genesis, but also uh, other other iterations from the uh, the Hebrew scriptures and the the, the Christian scriptures. 
first, and uh, this is just, I, I'm, I guess, more more sociological inquiry than anything else. Uh, what do you guys remember of your first encounter with uh, the story of creation in Genesis? Um, Michael, when did you first hear this? I have no idea. I don't remember my first encounter with it. Uh, I was raised in church, so I probably heard it before my memory begins. I had a book of Bible stories, an illustrated book, so I'm sure I, uh, I'm sure I heard it there first. And being a child when I heard it, I'm sure I accepted it immediately um, and, and didn't really have any questions about it. So, so you're, I'm kind of anticlimactic here. No, no, I, I, I think that's interesting. That you know, never having a remember a memory of having learned the story. None. Um, you said you had you know books and illustrations and things of that nature. Does any of that stick with you? Uh, just Adam and Eve being naked, which uh, struck me as a child as uh, mildly scandalous. <laughs> I always thought it was um, very, very convenient that they had those. Uh, chest length of bushes for Eve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, height, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, Eve always managed to find shrubbery or her hair was lying just the right way or some friendly bird was perched on her hand. <laughs> I've never seen the those, bird. <laughs> That's those incredible. Those illustrations later served as an inspiration for Austin Powers. Yeah. <laughs> and after that, Roger Zemeckis' Beowulf. Nice. Um, Wait, Eve was wearing high heels? Oh, oh no! I, in the movie, there's a sequence. <laughs> Beowulf has to remove all of his clothes to fight Grendel. You see, oh, I see. According to Roger Zemeckis, so you get an Austin Powers sequence. That's hilarious. No problem showing Angelina Jolie naked, but uh, when it comes to a man, that would be that would be uh, obscene. Oh well, she's a monster. That's different. I that see. and she has scales covering them. I see. <laughs> Boy, we're back on. <laughs> and anyway. any week is a good week to slam Roger Zemeckis, I think. <laughs> he, he can, yeah, he, he's big enough to take it, I think. Um, Plus, I'm pretty sure he's never going to hear this. Yeah, Nathan, you said that uh, you you've said before that uh, you you were not raised in church. So when uh, what was your first encounter? With... Interestingly enough, the the first one that I remember, and and when you sent your show notes, I I had to rack my brain. You know, when did I become aware of this story? And I'm, I'm certain I had heard it before this, but the first time I remember being conscious of it uh, was actually in seventh grade biology, uh, uh -huh. in which our teacher was reassuring the Christian students that they could hold to Genesis 1 and 2 and still believe in evolution. And I remember, you know, thinking that was an odd concern to have, uh, <laughs> you know, not having any horse in that race. Uh, you know, later on, you know, in, in my late high school years, I became a full-on disciple of Ken Ham, so I became really, really quite interested in Genesis. But uh, my earliest memories, you know, don't go back any further than seventh grade. Yeah, my first encounters that I remember were in uh, uh, through a ministry called Backyard Bible Club. I mean, obviously, I was raised in church, and I probably knew the story before that, but the first the first thing that sticks in my mind is uh, felt felt Adam and Eve with a felt tree and and felt sun and moon and stars stuck on a flannel graph. And I hope felt bushes as well. Um, actually, that in that particular version, Adam and Eve had these bright, glowy bodies, um, <laughs> like they were animate light bulbs, which uh. 
permitted them to be simultaneously naked and modest. You you couldn't you couldn't see um, their 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 skin because they were you know like like walking around fluorescent bulbs. That was, is the uh, strangest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, it was, but uh, that that was actually part of the Genesis story. As I grew up, apparently, um, the 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 subculture that I grew up in was very concerned that nakedness of Adam and Eve not not be construed as a justification of nakedness today, and so they were they were frequently talked about as being clothed in light. It's like the breeches Bible, right? And for, yeah. our, for our listeners who don't know what that is, and is this 17th century? There's a there's a version of the Bible, a uh, print version, in which Adam wore breeches. He wore pants. Um, <laughs> I believe the Puritans put it out because they didn't want people to be scandalized by the uh, non-pictorial nudity in Genesis. Well, they hadn't yet learned about the the convenience of bushes, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um. Interestingly enough, one of my other memories, too, is a book that I stumbled on probably when I was, I, I, I don't know, I was probably 10 or 11. And uh, my parents would, would keep nursery and I would, you know, I would help them because I like to play with Play-Doh and get the little kids riled up and then let my parents handle settling them down. Um, 10-year-old boys do not necessarily need to be helping in nursery. Anyway, uh, and I found a, a, a Genesis book in which there were no convenient bushes, the hair was askew, and there wasn't a bird. Huh. Yeah. And Eve was, in fact, I remember it very vividly because she was sitting on top of an elephant. Just what? as just as bold and brassy as she could be. I don't want to know anything else about this book, David. I think we should just move on to the next question. I, I wonder if anyone's ever published a study of various ways that people have dealt with the nudity in Genesis. Yeah, well, it was the no, most it seems bizarre like thing I'd ever seen. It seems like we're an ad hoc study right now. There's, <laughs> your, uh, there's your first book after you finish your dissertation, Nathan. <laughs> yeah, because I want to be saddled with that the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently we, yeah, yeah, we end up getting saddled with these first versions. Um, fortunately, we get to revise them a bit. Um, Nathan, since you're our seminarian, um, I assume that, nod. Yes, you are a scholar. Um, while you were there, I assume that you re-encountered Genesis. Um, so how does a scholar approach Bereshit? Uh, how does, you know, especially one who, you know, accepts it as scripture? Well, it's interesting that you phrased the question that way. When I got the show notes, I was rather pleased that you phrased it as Bereshith, which, of course, is the first word in the book in the Hebrew text. It's also the title of the book because the convention for uh, the first five books of the Bible anyway in the Hebrew is to name them after the first word of the text. Uh, one of the big controversies that I ran into right at the outset, and this is one of the things that really drew me into biblical studies, really made me realize that this was going to be something fascinating, something I could spend a lifetime thinking about, even though I did my PhD elsewhere because my Hebrew skills weren't strong enough, uh, was that there's actually a very profound scholarly debate going back hundreds of years about whether the first clause of the Bible uh, is an independent or a dependent clause. Hmm. Now, most English translations 
uh, following after the tradition of the Geneva Bible and the King James Bible, uh, and you know, going back further than that to the Septuagint, uh, render that first clause as an independent clause. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, full stop. Uh, now, there is a, an ongoing rabbinic tradition uh, that, interestingly enough, John Milton picks up, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, uh, that renders that first clause as a dependent clause. In other words, when God began creating, or uh, let me try to let me try to think how to render this idiomatically, um, when God created the heavens and the earth, dependent clause, and then independent clause being the next one, the earth was formless and void. Now, of course, that mm. sets up you know a pretty grand theological dilemma. Uh, was the earth already formless and void when God started in on it? Or <laughs> did the earth become something formless and void rather than nothing because God started in and created heavens and earth? And of course this, you know, comes into this brings the discussion of that text into this contest between the traditional Orthodox Christian doctrine of create creation ex nihilo on one hand and then the rabbinic tradition that Milton picks up uh, of the former, I'm trying to think, of the, what, what is the phrase that people usually tack on to that? Well, at any rate, the, the idea that uh, there is a prime matter prior to God's creative activity that God shapes into heavens and earth. All right, so I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating debate. You know, I, it, it's one that, you know, I'm not going to try to settle here in 30 seconds uh but it's something that you know drew me into the world of biblical studies i mean which is a great fascination because i love those complex debates where things hinge upon the deep structure of language and other such things now as far as the larger picture of genesis 1 and 2 mm -hmm. uh you know i i tend to be and again this is not the official opinion of the Christian Humanist Podcast, much less of Emmanuel College, Athens Christian Church, <laughs> or any other affiliations with which I affiliate. Uh, but I tend to be convinced by the theory that what we've got in Genesis 1 and 2 are two different versions of the, the creation story. Uh, and one of the main reasons I think that is plausible is because so often in other places the Bible gives us a plurality of versions. Uh, it's a book that enjoys giving us two versions. You know, you ask the story... Uh, how did Saul become king? First Samuel will give you two versions. In one, all of Israel is called together. Uh, they toss the lots or whatever process goes about. I should have reviewed that story. And Saul is found hiding among the baggage, uh -huh. elected king. In another version, uh, Saul, you know, perhaps because of the strange Jedi manipulations of the prophet Samuel, uh, is pursuing, uh, I believe, lost cattle. Uh, mm -hmm. which lead him into a town where Samuel is, and Samuel basically bushwhacks him and anoints him king while he's not looking. All right, so, I mean, <laughs> one of them, it's a very private event, and another one is very public. Likewise, if you ask, you know, how did Saul meet David? In one version of the story, Saul starts to experience an evil spirit. He calls for a harpist, and, you know, they find David to come and assuage his spirit, the next chapter, you get a different version of that story in which Saul has never met David yet, uh, but he encounters him on the fields against the Philistines, and David meets Saul in the process of you know, going to face Goliath. 
All right. So I, I think that, and then of course, I mean, you know, that's to say nothing of the fact that you've got first Samuel's version of David versus first Chronicles version of David. You've got four gospels in the new Testament, giving you four versions of Jesus. I think that the Bible is a story that likes telling stories again. So mm-hmm. it makes perfectly good sense to me that Genesis one tells you the story of creation then Genesis 2 does it again. Then you get it again in the Psalms. Then you get it again in Proverbs. Okay. What about the. All right. So, what are you saying? What do you say, Michael? I was going to ask Nathan if he's heard the theory that um, the two versions in Genesis are telescoping mm-hmm. um, in the second one or uh, contains the first one or vice versa. I, I uh, think litera- literarily that works. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I've definitely got nothing against readings of Genesis that try to make sense of them as one unified text. I would say that historically, simply because Genesis 2 seems to be drawing largely on Canaanite images, Canaanite vocabularies, Canaanite concerns, Genesis 1 seems to be drawing more on Neo-Babylonian images, vocabularies, concerns, that you've probably got, at the very least, two oral traditions that an editor fused into one text. All right. I'm not entirely convinced that you've got two prior textual sources, uh, but I am convinced that you've probably got two, at the very least, oral traditions that become a unified text in the hands of whoever set down the version of Genesis that we've got in ink. Okay. Makes sense to now, me. I'd heard, uh, yeah, what Michael's referring to. That, that, that was the way... Uh, the first two chapters had been presented to me that uh, in, uh, in Bible like, Yeah, go ahead and give that account, David, so that we get both sides, oh, so to speak. Just that the, the first chapter of Genesis is uh, is something of a, a, uh, a, a listing summary of what happens in the creation of the world in what order, and that the, uh, the, the second chapter is is an expansion of the sixth day showing what went into uh, specifically what, what, what went into the creation of man, which, which as humans is something that, you know, that we are more concerned about than perhaps with the third day or the fifth day anyway. um, So that, so that they were not presented as contradictory accounts, but as coordinating accounts, but that were focused on different, aspects of the subject and had different purposes in treating that subject. Oh, sure. And I, and I want to make clear that, you know, just because I think that they come from different historical periods, uh, doesn't mean that I think that, you know, you can throw out the first two chapters of Genesis as hogwash. Uh, not by any means. I would say that, you know, the text as we, we have received it as the church is a unified text and we need to receive it that way. Uh, but as far as, you know, how do we make sense of, these two stories that put events in different orders that, you know, have different concerns. I mean, I'm going to keep going back to that word. Uh, One of the things that I would say is, you know, it is helpful to read Genesis one in the light of what stories are the Jews hearing in Mm -hmm. Babylon when they're in exile? How does Genesis one counter those stories? And then by contrast, you know, Genesis two during the monarchical period, uh, what kinds of temptations, what kinds of counter-narratives is Israel running up against? How does Genesis 2 answer those concerns? Okay. So, I mean, well, in, in that respect, I mean, the, the two sources 
theory makes a great deal of sense to me, even as I confess it to be part of a singular text that we call Genesis. Okay, so what are some of these accounts? Um, I mean, obviously when we get into the the, the Christian scriptures, we're going to be bringing up some of the Greco-Roman context, and that's something that we've 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 looked at before. How are how are the Christian scriptures interacting with with their world? But we seldom do this with the ancient Hebrews. Um, sure. So, uh, yeah, tell us tell us a tell us a story, Uncle Nate. Okay, I'm going to be relatively brief, so I don't monopolize this whole podcast. But uh, <laughs> one of the more interesting ones is actually Proverbs eight, uh, in which you actually get this personification of Holkma or Hebrew wisdom uh, that actually serves as an artist uh, that is shaping creation, even as God is the primary mover of the creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the thing, one of the famous lines from Proverbs eight is that you know God is very well pleased with the workmanship of Hokma. Uh, so, you know, again, I mean, it, it's another picture of things. Uh, it's a personified confession, really, uh, that the order of creation is one that exhibits wisdom. That's what Hokma translates into mm-hmm. if you go straight into English. Uh, you know, it's a wonderful picture of what's going on with creation. And then, of course, there are, you know, creation psalms uh, in which, again, the order of things is a little bit different. But again, Going back to my original contention that the Bible is a book that likes to tell stories again, uh, that sort of thing, I think, is one of the great strengths and one of the great beauties of the scriptural text is that it does give us multiple versions of things. Uh, you know, here's me, you know, playing the theologian. I think that it's probably intentionally there to remind us of our own limitations, that when we try to grab too tightly onto the past, uh, we tend to miss things that are inconvenient. Okay, so many different versions of the story, um, not necessarily contradictory, but at least pointing out to us that any one version is, uh, I guess, not sufficient to capture all that God wants us to know of the whole? I would say all of them are sufficient, but God gives us more than what's sufficient. But again, oh. that's the wannabe theologian coming out. And also it's very gracious. <laughs> um you mentioned uh, other other stories from other cultures, um, uh, especially in those first two accounts in Genesis. Yes. Uh, what do, What do you mean by this Babylonian thing? What's this Canaanite thing? Okay, all right. Of which you speak. <laughs> One of the Babylonian texts of which we have actually a pretty good textual record uh, is the Babylonian creation story known as Enuma Elish. Also, following that tradition of naming it by the first word, Enuma Elish is Akkadian for when from on high, and, you know, the opening lines of Enuma Elish, you know, say, when from on high, uh, the gods were created. So, I mean, that's Mm -hmm. one of the things that signals to me, okay, Genesis 1, at the very least, exists in relationship with what appears to be an older Babylonian text. So, where Enuma Elish would say, when from on high, the gods were created, Genesis 1 says, when God began to create, Mm. you know, uh, likewise, when Enuma Elish starts explaining why there is sea and why there is land, uh, it is a tale of mortal combat between the immortal gods. Uh, mm-hmm. The chief god, Marduk, doesn't is not an eternal being. He's a being who comes into existence, uh, and he doesn't come into existence as the chief god, but rather earns it uh, by defeating the dragon Tiamat, the sea dragon, uh, in single combat. 
splitting Tiamat in half so that half of Tiamat's body falls on either side of what is now the land. Uh, so, you know, by contrast, again, Genesis says God simply spoke and space was created between the seas for life to flourish. All right. So, I mean, you know, in all of these ways, you know, the Enuma Elish, which is a fascinating story in its own right, uh, and appears, at least by all of the textual records we have, to be at least several hundred years older than Genesis 1, uh, stands as a counter story. And I think it is interesting and fruitful to imagine Genesis 1 as the Jews in Babylonian exile saying, well, you've got some of the vocabulary right. It involves the separation of the sea from the land. It involves separation of the firmament from the seas below. Uh, It involves a great flood. Uh, But here's where you're getting it wrong. The gods weren't created. God created everything. Mm. And moreover, you know, the sea is not some sort of malevolent goddess who wanted to destroy everything. Uh, The sea was simply something that God created and then separated because it's better for life to live that way. So, you know, Genesis 1 is an, is an inherently harmonious, peaceful story in contrast to the raging combat that characterizes Enuma Elish. Okay. Um, you, you said something, Michael, about uh, bringing in the Rig Veda. Yeah, there's a really um, there's a really beautiful creation account in the Rig Veda, which is uh, of course one of the sacred texts of Hinduism. And again, what you've got is multiple creation accounts. And my understanding is that for people who uh, hold the Vedas as sacred, that's much less of something they need to reconcile than the two accounts in Genesis are for post Enlightenment Christians. Um, but the one I really like is the so-called creation hymn, which is marked in my edition. 10.129. I don't know what that means, but that's how it's marked if you want to look it up. And uh, here's what it says in part. Um, there was neither non-existence nor existence then. There was neither the realm of space nor the sky which is beyond. What stirred? Where? In whose protection? Was there water bottomlessly deep? There was neither death nor immortality then. There was no distinguishing sign of night nor of day. That one breathed, windless, by its own impulse. And then later it asks, who really knows? Who will here proclaim it? Whence was it produced? Whence this creation? The gods came afterwards with the creation of this universe. Who then knows whence it has arisen? And obviously, um, it's, it's strikingly different from the Genesis account, Genesis account. Once again, you've got multiple gods and what have you. But I think we can see some similarities in it. You get something akin to the Judeo-Christian doctrine of creation ex nihilo, except that this Veda, it, it says that it's not creation from nothing so much as it's creation from the absence even of nothing, um, which may be what our doctrine is getting at, too, especially if you interpret it in the God created in the beginning, and then it was the earth was formless and void. So that would make um, the pre-creation something not even formless and void. So I, I think what you've got is a typically paradoxical statement for Hinduism and, and maybe for Judaism as well. And then you get this creator God who's unnamed, who creates time itself. He creates both death and immortality. And of course, um, death and immortality are two things you can only have, or at least the distinction you can only have if you've got something that's not immortal. Presumably the creator God merely is. It's not mortal or immortal because that's a dualistic classification. And since it's the only being at this point, there's no need to make it. 
And I really like the questions this this Veda is asking. Um, its its author appears to be throwing up his hands, and admitting that any doctrine we form about creation is going to be at best a guess, since by definition nobody was there to report back from the creation, and the Vedas are not are are not going to be revelation then in the sense that we think of the Bible as revelation. And I, I gotta say, I like the idea of similarities in these ancient myths. Um, you get something very similar, as I'm sure you guys know, in the Epic of Gilgamesh. There's this account of the worldwide flood, and it sounds strikingly like the account of Noah's Ark in Genesis. It's very, very mm-hmm. similar. And Gilgamesh predates Genesis, um, even if you're conservative in your estimation of when Genesis was written. And so um, there's kind of two ways, I think, to look at that. Number one, you've got... The author of Genesis, borrowing heavily from the Babylonian myths, which I don't think is ridiculous uh, for reasons Nathan's pointed out. But number two, you've got a real event that actually happened, and it's only hazily remembered and passed down through this oral tradition, and so some details get changed for different cultures. And, and um, as Christians, I suppose we have to believe the Bible is the is the accurate one, or the most accurate one. But um, that explanation would explain why these same stories show up in similar forms in most ancient cultures, why the uh, Veda account of creation is so similar to the Jewish and Babylonian accounts, even though I I don't think the Veda would have made it that far west. Probably not. Uh, There there are references to Indian gymnosophists in in, uh, uh, Roman historians and the church fathers, but I I don't know that they would have uh, they would have encountered uh, Hebrews, particularly during the uh, the Babylonian captivity. But I I mean I, I think you're right, Michael. It's 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 very interesting the way that these things compare, and it certainly I, I remember being very threatened the first time I was exposed to the notion of other creation stories in the ancient Hebrews contexts. Um, but I, I think we, we can we can say that it's not simply that the, the Hebrews took other people's stories, um, but uh, uh, as you've said, Nathan, that, that we can see Genesis as as conscious of other stories, perhaps giving a nod to where uh, where the where the Hebrews felt those stories got it right, but also uh, responding back to them. Obviously, of course, there's something else that has changed in the Genesis story as it comes down to us, and that's uh, well, that's that's Christianity. We're not just working with, um, you know, Bereshith. We're not just working with the Psalms or the Proverbs. Uh, we're also working with, uh, well, our New Testament, uh, our gospel writers, our epistles. Um, so what uh, what changes do the Genesis? What changes happen? Uh, to the Genesis story uh, in the Christian scriptures. Um, Michael? Well, I think the biggest adaptation of the Genesis story uh, pretty obviously comes in the first chapter of John, where the apostle seems to posit Christ as the agent of creation with God and coterminous with God when all things were created. So uh, if we take the, the Spirit of God hovering on the deep in Genesis to be what Christians would later call the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, in that case, we've got all three members of the Trinity there in the original account. So as a Christian, I don't see a conflict in the two accounts. The New Testament account is merely adding to the original, not changing it so much. But I'm certain a Jewish scholar would, uh, would see things differently. Um, but fortunately, our show is the, the Jewish humanist. 
And I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure Nathan can tell us much more about this question than I can, though. So let's hear it, Nathan. All right. Well, I mean, you know what? One of the things, you know, it's not only borrowing from Genesis 1, but John 1 is also, I think, invoking that Proverbs 8 account that I made mm-hmm. reference to earlier, uh, putting the Logos, uh, who becomes flesh, in the role of Hokmah, or wisdom, as Proverbs 8 puts it. Uh, and again, I think that, you know, John is, whether that hymn is prior to John's composing the Gospel of John as we know it, or whether uh, it was composed as a preface to that particular text, either way, uh, you've got some fairly sophisticated Christian thinking about, you know, how does the Proverbs 8 account, the Genesis 1 account, and the Christ event, how do those three things come together? And moreover, uh, can we responsibly use some of the philosophical vocabulary that's coming into Palestine from mainly Alexandria? But, you know, of course, it didn't get to Alexandria until Alexander got there, and Alexander didn't become Alexander until he had studied under Aristotle. Uh, <laughs> so, what happens when these Greek philosophical vocabularies come into contact with our own biblical traditions? Uh, and, you know, I, I think that John 1, for all of those reasons, is a wonderful, wonderful combination of those things, you know, perhaps even inspired, David. Um, <laughs> but I would also say that, you know, other things, you know, Paul uh, frequently mentions Jesus as the, you know, or is it Paul or is it, I think it is Paul who calls Jesus the first fruit of creation. I should have looked that up. That's that's mm. Paul, yeah. That is Paul, all right. And then you get Matthew referring to Jesus as the wisdom of God. Uh, So again, I mean, there seems to be a fairly widespread awareness and attempt in the New Testament to bring those accounts of creation into conversation with each other. Yeah, Paul also says that that Christ has become to us the wisdom of of God. Yes, indeed, indeed. Um, Yeah, that that there's, uh, that that these... uh, these writers in the New Testament, these uh, these gospel writers, epistle writers, are examining the Hebrew scriptures in light of uh, God made flesh and trying to figure out how does this work with um, with the scriptures we already accept to be showing us uh, God as as He really is, and which were accepted by um, you know God in flesh Himself, who said, "Hey, see this book; it's about Me." Um, so yeah, trying to figure out how all of that works together, but not just working, as you said, not just working with the Hebrew texts. I mean, there were other creation accounts prevalent in the Greco-Roman world. Um, um, Michael, you said that uh, you were going to review the Timaeus. I'm going to try. The Timaeus is difficult to review, to put it, uh, to put it succinctly. <laughs> Um, that book, and of course it's by Plato, it, uh, it deals in part with the creation of the world. And he, he posits this demiurge who is at the beginning of time and he constructs the world as you might construct a human being, which is to say he makes the world out of body and soul, material and spiritual uh, substance. And really you've got two kinds of what Plato calls difference and two kinds of what he calls sameness and two kinds of what he calls being. Um, mm. He mixes the two parts of each together, and voila, there's the world's soul. So then he goes through what sounds like this incredibly complicated series of mathematical manipulations, and he makes two intersecting circles, and each one of them is spinning in a different direction. 
and the two circles are sameness and difference. Then he splits the circle of difference into six circles, so now we've actually got seven circles and they're all moving in different directions and at different speeds. So then he attaches the world's soul to the world's body, and really I think what's happening uh, is that the soul is covering the body, it's enveloping it. And the idea is, when you've got a material object in the world, it's touching one or more of these circles of difference. And when you've got an mm -hmm. intellectual object, which of course Plato privileges, um, that intellectual object is touching the circle of sameness. It's all very confusing and very abstract. And I notice a few things about this account as opposed to the Genesis and other Old Testament accounts of creation. Um, number one, instead of a personal God, we have this demiurge. And instead of merely speaking things into existence, he has to craft them painstakingly. We also don't get an account of the creation of humanity. Uh, but the biggest difference, I think, is that Plato's version of the creation of the world is pretty clearly a metaphor. I, I don't think you could read it literally. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas it's conceivable on a purely literary basis. I'm not talking about science here. It's conceivable that you could read Genesis as literal truth um, in, in a way that you just can't with the, with the Timaeus. It's, it's, it's very clearly a uh, metaphor. Well, let's see. Um... So we've got this notion of a demiurge uh, in Plato. Um, how uh, would that have been something that it, that's that cycled down that uh, that the that the Gospels would have been reacting to? Hmm. I hadn't really thought about that angle. I mean, I you know I, I think that Plato's ideas, even if not his texts as we have received them are certainly in the atmosphere when the New Testament writers do their thing. Mm -hmm. So I think it's conceivable that, you know, uh, John might have gone into, or, you know, whatever community crafted that hymn at the beginning of John. Again, I don't want to take a strong dogmatic stand either way about when the moment of composition of that hymn is. Uh, but that hymn could be reacting and saying, all right, you know, you've got it right that, you know, there is a crafting wise agent going on here but this agent is actually identical with god the word mm -hmm. was with god and the word was god so i mean I, I think you could make that argument historically uh i you know the gospel of john is not by any means my own specialty within biblical studies so i'm afraid i'm a bit out of my depth here okay where does he get his logos language Oh, goodness, David. Speaking of out of my depth, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are theories ranging all the way from uh, people who dig into the rabbinic writings uh, who are commenting on Proverbs 8 and speculating that Mimra, uh, which is you know an Aramaic version of uh, Davar in Hebrew, which is the word word, uh, ends up being you know the source for John 1. Uh, so some people want to make it a very Chaldean, Aramaic influence book. Other people want to run to the Stoics and say that their doctrine of a logos, a rationality that pervades the universe, is the main source here. Uh, other folks still want to make it an original Midrashic commentary on Exodus 3, where you know it is the word of God who comes to Moses to tell him the name of God. Okay. So, I mean, that, that is a whole mess of controversy. Once again, I am aware of the controversy. I haven't done near enough scholarly work to have a position in that controversy. 
not being aware of the controversy, I'd always just assumed it was the Stoics and primarily uh, Philo's taking of them and sort of, uh, well, at least my understanding of it was was sort of taking taking the, uh, the Stoic notion of a logos and then personifying it and treating it as a, as a kind of sub-creator. Yeah, and that is definitely one of the camps within that messy debate. Okay, okay. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, and and I think we can we can certainly concede that that all those camps in in the messy debate aren't necessarily camps now, but are all reple- reflections of things that uh, that probably were uh, in in the context of the composition of John, and so I don't think that we need we need see John as as a reaction necessarily, or or an extension of of any one of them, but maybe an ex- an extension of one in reaction to another or you know oh certainly and most of the camps are wise enough to say you know all of mm-hmm. them are probably in there somewhere the fight is really over what's the primary influence okay um there are a couple of other uh more poetic writers that i thought about um when, th- when thinking about these the 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 greco-roman uh notions of creation not not philosophical and that would be uh the greek hesiod and the latin and uh, the roman ovid um have have you guys uh, ever ever uh, looked at either of these versions? I have never read Ovid. I read Hesiod uh, years ago and don't really remember it. So I'm going to have to leave this one, as I'm leaving so much else in this episode, up to the two of you. Well, I've done Ovid. I, I haven't read Ovid for a few years, and unfortunately, I'm mm-hmm. swamped this week, so I didn't have time to review him. No problem. Uh, as I remember Ovid, I mean, it is a it's definitely a story of an original chaos uh, mm-hmm. of some sort of pre-existing matter without form uh, that takes on the shape first of gods and then the gods shape it into the world. And then the world goes through a succession of ages, golden, silver, bronze, and iron, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so that it culminates in sort of the restoration of a mini golden age uh, with the ascent of Augustus Caesar Beyond that very broad outline, I don't have a real good memory of how Ovid spins things. Well, I reviewed it last night, so not oh, very um, good, very good. <laughs> um, and and really, the only point that I want that that I, I I thought was was interesting to make it's 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 beautiful poetry, obviously, but um, and it's I, I guess a, it's a poetic account. I think uh, Michael probably closer to the Rig Veda, but in it he uh, he very clearly identifies God with nature. And uses those terms uh, seemingly interchangeably. That uh, that the whatever creative uh, intelligence or or uh, creative trajectory there is in the natural world is inherent in it, not not separate from it, not directing it. Um, uh, Hesiod, I, I remembered uh, uh, last night as well, um, and. Uh, pulled him out real quick and in his uh, theogony it's it's interesting that he begins with a primal chaos but the first thing that comes out of the primal chaos is uh which i believe actually hatches from a golden egg is love Hmm. and this this notion of a of a divine love being the first thing that the first thing that exists and and the thing that that shapes the universe into um, that shapes the chaos into a cosmos is uh, is this this love 
that happens, which anyway, I, I thought that was really beautiful too and wondered if there might be um, also some echoes of it in uh, not John's, uh, not, not uh, the gospel of John, but uh, the epistles uh, talking about God being love and things of that nature. If, I mean, obviously they make sense within their own contexts, but uh, I, I do think it's interesting that there was at least one account of creation going on in which it's not wisdom, it's not word, but it's love that makes the world go round. Now, David, I, I've not looked at the Greek text of Hesiod ever, uh, but I mean, obviously the English word love is a very poor translation of two very different words, eros and agape. I wish I knew which Greek. one it was. Okay, okay, because I, I, I think, and I only think this because the so-called pre-Socratic philosophers who didn't know that they were pre-Socratic, of course, uh, you know, <laughs> one of them, and I can't remember which, articulates the principle of Eros as the organizing principle of the universe, and I wonder if they, if that philosopher derived that from Hesiod. Uh, quite, quite possibly. I would be speaking in ignorance to assert right. either way, but... Right. It Whereas, sounds like the post-Socratic <laughs> philosopher Freud to me. Eros is the uh, foundation of well, the universe. <laughs> and I'm wanting to say it's Empedocles, mm. but I, you know, like I said, I, I didn't review that for the show, unfortunately. So that's a guess on my part. <laughs> okay. Well, let's fast forward in time through uh, the well, the Church Fathers, which is regrettable, but uh, since we're focusing on the literary iterations of creation, um, I feel justified in doing so. So let's move forward to my most favorite uh, literary place and time of all, Anglo-Saxon England. Nathan, we both looked at this when we were in Dogmas Johnny's old English class, um, Cadman and his little hymn. Um, and if I may uh, monopolize the microphone for a little bit, uh, ju yeah, just to say a little bit about that. Um, story of Cadman is recorded uh, for us in Bede's History of the Church of the English. Um, and it's a story of a cowherd who cannot, uh, uh, in, in a culture where you are apparently expected to have memorized many songs, or at least to be able to extemporaneously compose them, um, he isn't able to uh, perform in that way. And so during during parties when uh, the harp is passed around and everyone is meant uh, to take a turn providing entertainment, uh, Cadman slips out before the harp gets to him. Um, and when when that happens, he does as so many of us shy people do, he goes off and seeks some small place to be alone, um, like a bathroom. Uh, well, Cadman seeks his, uh, his, his, his shed, his stable, and falls asleep. And while he's asleep, this a man, a person, approaches him and commands him to sing a song. Cadman insists that he can't. But then that person says, uh, nevertheless, and the word is a, the, the word is a little uh, debatable here. The, the man either says, uh, nevertheless, you must, or nevertheless, you can, or nevertheless, you shall. <laughs> um, and then Cadman does. And it's the, the first, um, the earliest recorded, uh, at least dated the earliest 
recorded uh, poetry in uh, in Old English. And it is a hymn of creation. It's it's very short. Um, it's just a it's a thumbnail sketch. But uh, the interesting thing that uh, to me that I think was relevant is uh, when he de he describes God eternal establishing every wonder and the holy creator fashioning heaven as a roof for the sons of men. And then uh, he adorned the middle earth below the world for men. Um, so Cadman's hymn, the first, you know, the first hymn in the English language, a little Anglo-Saxon creation story um, is nonetheless very, uh, very anthropocentric. It's the heaven is our roof and this is the world of men. Any thoughts on that? Well, you know, of course, the the story of Cadman is a fascinating one, and I mean, I think that the so-called Cadman's hymn, uh, which does the text ever self-identify as Cadman's hymn, or is that pretty much an invention of anthologies? Um, it it records it records the uh, the poem, uh huh, but it doesn't necessarily give it that title. No. Okay. All right. You know. Uh, I think that, you know, it is certainly worthy of any good anthology of early English literature. Uh, if nothing else, even if you dispute some of the historical stuff, because it is such a supreme example of the way that Old English compounds words. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, some of those uh, epithets for God, I mean, are just wonderful, wonderful ideas. They're ideas, they're compound words that you can just sit on and meditate on them and you know they really do inform your own prayers mm -hmm. uh so i mean i think that it it has merit on its own as a poem uh i think frankly that you know a lot of people overplay the oh this is the first english poetry uh well to obviously the it's not <laughs> well no no i mean to the detriment of the wonder of the text itself mm -hmm. yeah I, I it's it's interesting uh, I, I think one of the reasons why it is assumed the prominence that it ha that it has is that it's a it's a Genesis story to which um, you know sort of uh, people who are romantically inclined and in looking at English language at uh, English literature it's a it's a hymn about creation that we look to for the origins of what we study. Uh huh. Um, I don't know if that's entirely fair. I mean, clearly embedded within the Cadman, uh, within Cadman's story is the notion that there were other songs and poems. <laughs> this is just, uh, this is just the earliest one that we have recorded. Right. So, um, it's half accident, but I don't think, uh, I don't think entirely accident because this is, this is the first poem that Bede wants us to know about. Bede does not share... Uh, heroic stories of, 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 you know, old pagan kings fighting dragons or, you know, swamp trolls. Uh, Bede tells us about the first time that, at least what he's representing is the first time the old English language is turned to uh, the glory of God, not the old gods and heroes. Right. Um, and with our ta with our nod to Cadman, um, Let's fast forward again. Uh, you know, obviously there there are other iterations of the Genesis story in the Anglo-Saxon corpus. 
Um, also, they show up in the Middle English period, uh, especially in uh, mystery plays. Uh, there are many, many of the the beginnings of the mystery play cycles in York and Chester had a series of a series of little plays of that were parts of the creation story, including the fall of Lucifer. Um, but let's let's skip to Nathan. Um, Nathan's favorite, <laughs> Paradise Lost. Yes. Um, how do, how does how does Milton get the world made? Well, that because I ate up so much time waxing eloquent about the Hebrew Bible earlier. And by the way, I, d- I did a master's in Hebrew Bible before I turned to English literature. That's why I have so much to say and enjoy any opportunity to talk about it. <laughs> but Milton, uh, of course, is the the subject of probably what's going to turn out to be about half of my dissertation. Uh, Paradise Lost, people often talk, think about this poem as sort of this very dour, very depressing poem. It's understandable. It is about the fall of man. Uh, but book seven of Paradise Lost is just a wonderful, luxurious creation story. Uh, and I mean, it, I won't even try to paraphrase it because I want all of our listeners to go out, uh, run a Google search for Paradise Lost, scroll down to book seven and just soak it in because it's wonderful, wonderful poetry. I'll say a couple things about it right now. First of all, uh, Milton, of course, is writing in the wake of what history would later call the first scientific revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, all of a sudden you've got very strong disputes about the position of the earth and the sun, uh, very strong disputes about the nature of biological life. Uh, you've got all of these things that are running through the intellectual life of the world. And Milton is very, very careful, and I think it's notable that he's careful, uh, not to back either horse too strongly. Uh, and in fact, you know, uh, the angel Raphael talking to Adam, uh, when Adam asks him, all right, so it looks like the sun could be revolving around the earth or it looks like the earth could be revolving around the sun, which is it? And, uh, Raphael's response is, and I'm paraphrasing here cause I want you all to go read paradise lost book seven. Uh, <laughs> his response is, you know, don't be concerned so much about yes and no questions like that. Simply appreciate that the sun, like yourself, is a creation of the sovereign God. And, you know, I, I, I think that on one level, I, you know, if you didn't like Milton, you could chalk that up as a cop-out that he was hedging his bets. <laughs> uh, since I'm a great lover of Milton, I, I tend to read that as, you know, Milton being a poet rather than a, an astronomer. Uh, now, I, I think that... Uh, And I, 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 want, I want to kick it over to Michael. I mean, I, I think that, you know, going forward from Milton, I mean, and I mean, in those years between Milton and Darwin, where we don't talk a lot about creation, I think that one of the interesting moments, um, and I can't think of the name of the text, Michael, but it's in a Benjamin Franklin text wh- that relates an exchange of creation stories between Indians and Englishmen. Uh, but in my mind, that sort of represents what happens to the creation story in the Enlightenment, because basically the Englishmen, you know, tell their Genesis story with the talking snake and the apple and the whole nine yards, and then the Indians come back with their creation story, I believe involving ants of some sort, and then the Englishmen say, well, you know, that's not true, how in the world can you bring that to us? And the Indians say, well, how rude of you not to listen to our story when we've listened to yours. <laughs> Michael, do you remember this text at all? Or am I, no, I it, don't, but it, it makes sense. I mean, the Enlightenment starts to see all accounts like that as equally ridiculous, right? They get yes, much yes. much more interested in rationalism and science. 
is the only route uh, towards what's real. And, you know, frankly, the 18th century isn't a great time for imaginative writing in general, even though you've <laughs> got the, the rise of the novel, etc. And it really wasn't a great time for uh, imaginative writing in a theological vein. And before our write readers or listeners, rather, write in and and tell me about this or that imaginative writer in the 18th century. Obviously, there are exceptions to such a blanket statement, but I think if you compare the 18th to the uh, 17th and 19th centuries, you're going to agree with me. The Enlightenment has a relative scarcity of good fiction and poetry. Is this a controversial statement? Well, I don't know about good, good f scarcity of good fiction, but certainly a scarcity of of fiction that's uh, that's concerned with with imagining something different other than the most accurate depictions of of life in the world as we know it. I mean, which is interesting. You're saying this to a uh, someone who does 20th century American literature because what strikes me about 18th century fiction is how ridiculously unrealistic it is. But that yeah. that's a topic for a different day. I did want to say that it's not like when you get to the Romantics, who are, of course, all about the imagination. It's not like when you get to them you're going to get a whole lot of creation stories either, though. And I think mm -hmm. the reason for that is that they're more interested typically in individual encounters with nature than with stories about the first causes of it all because that would be something much more universal. And also, I think, and again, I'm generalizing, and I'm not a specialist in romantic literature, but um, I, I think what you're going to get is a group of people who are much more interested in the present moment than in the past. For example, you've got Emerson in, I think it's his essay experience saying um and I, I didn't look this up beforehand so i'm paraphrasing you get this god who delights in pulling a screen of purest sky down in front of you and another one behind you mm. and so um this is uh all you have is the present and so when when that's your outlook you're not going to talk too much <laughs> about the beginning of the world right and then once you get to the 20th century, you're talking about a post-Darwin world that's mostly moved beyond what people probably saw as simplistic readings of science and history. So it sounds to me, and again, our readers can, uh, our listeners, I don't know why I keep calling you readers, our listeners can write in and tell me if I've got this all wrong, but it sounds like Milton is going to be the last of the great accounts of creation in fiction. Yeah, I, I racked my brains, and all I could, and this morning, all I could think of was uh, Blake's Lamb and Tiger poems. Which, which kind of reference creation without being yeah. creation accounts. Yeah, and and uh, Kipling's Just So Stories, which are, which are not creations of the world, but sort of little micro-origin stories for the, the notable traits of specific animals. Um, you know, and, and I, I guess it's, it's sort of a, a Genesis story at its most, um, at its most local. How did that one thing happen to come to be? And another thing I wanted to mention, um, 
I, I suspect evangelicals in the 20th and 21st centuries are not going to be interested in, in writing imaginative creation stories because it might suggest that the creation story is in fact a story and not a scientific and historical reality. So on the one hand you get people who have moved past it, on the other hand you get people who accept it as revelation and truth who don't want to uh, make it into what, what they might see as mere fiction. Do you guys think that's a fair, fair assessment? Uh, I th- I think that makes sense. Um, the o- the only exception that I would that that occurs to me is uh, uh, Lewis's Narnia books and Tolkien's Middle Earth, but in in both of those cases they've got they have prominent uh, world origin stories, but they aren't they aren't our world exactly. So so they're not exactly retellings of Genesis so much as they are origin stories of some you know some some other literary created world that has definite echoes right and there are marked differences though oh yeah Uh, i mean especially with lewis's narnia i mean it it really does involve a a sort of primal struggle between aslan and the witch Mm -hmm. uh, that really doesn't feature in genesis you know the fact that the lamppost lands in narnia and you know I'm going to try to avoid being the spoiler here, uh, you know, has to do with a moment of cosmic conflict at the beginning of Narnia in a way that nothing in Genesis will admit of that cosmic conflict. Mm. And also, uh, instead of instead of speaking speaking things into existence, how does Aslan make the world, Nathan? Right, he sings it into existence. I love that. Um, but also the, 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 the really interesting... Uh, Instead of him him sort of singing things and they kind of like pop into being, um, the animals kind of crawl out of the earth. Um, right. Yeah, it's it's a re- really interesting meditation on on I think different different origin stories from different eras, and you can see the same thing in Tolkien's Silmarillion. Uh, I, I think, uh, like you said, Nathan about Milton, uh, I think Tolkien is kind of. Uh, hedging his bets and trying to come up with a with an origin story that's satisfying for for people who accept or have been uh, exposed to many different kinds of origin um, mm-hmm. there is there is a god so it's a it's a monotheistic universe but it's a god who has this array of subpowers around him with whom he uh, to whom he uh, uh, commits some of the responsibility of creation. Uh, he composes this, this vast piece of music and, uh, the, these, uh, angelic beings or demigods, whichever you prefer, because Tolkien describes them as kind of, you know, you know, half one, half the other. Um, they sing this piece of music, they perform it for him. And, uh, every aspect of creation is, is reflected in the composition and each member of of the choir of creation feel feels a great attachment with the part that he or she sang. Right, and I and I think that's interesting, David. What you note about the hedging bets, uh, mm-hmm. I think that that is really the mark of the modern creation story. I mean, starting, mm-hmm. I think with Milton. I mean, there might be antecedents. I'd be glad to read about them from our re, from our listeners. Uh, but I think starting with Milton, going on through Franklin and Lewis and Tolkien. Uh, because we are in a sort of post-critical scientific age, 
we have this sense that at any moment someone could come up with the next theory that I guess will supplant or will supersede the story that we've got right now. So there is that mm. hesitancy in the modern creation story that just wasn't there in the classical or the medieval account. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think you're right. And well, and, and also, and this, this is a, this is a, a question that, that was on my mind when I got up this morning. Uh, I mean, what are the purposes of an origin story? What is an origin su story supposed to do? Uh, it's supposed to, well, it's a, I mean, just as literary hells, you know, uh, when we talked about that, we, we ended up saying that, you know, literary hells say almost more about our moral condition now than anything else. Uh, I think uh, on one level, origin stories are meant to tell us what we are now. Yeah, I would say so. And I, I think it's interesting that in a lot of senses, uh, the scientific community has taken over that role in our culture. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I will grant that Lewis and Tolkien are doing interesting things. Uh, but, you know, I, for instance, this summer I took my son to Fernbank Natural History Museum in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed most of all, of course, he just liked the dinosaur bones, and so do I. I think they're cool. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I noticed is that, you know, one of the showcases of that museum is basically a mythopoetic hymn to the Big Bang, for lack of a better <laughs> phrase. And, you know, I mean, I'm aware of redshift and blueshift theory. Uh, I'm aware of the mathematics and the science behind how we get to this picture of things called Big Bang. Uh, but really, that's not the way that they present it in this presentation. You know, it is largely uh, a myth. It's a picture. Uh, mm -hmm. It's something to grab onto and say, you know, this is how we got where we are. Uh, so I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, the scientists, when they step out of their lab reports and produce artifacts for the public uh, have largely become the sort of priesthood of this new creation story. And, and Genesis becomes something that humans, at least as a, as a, as a genre becomes something that humans actually can't get past. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> um, we ended uh, the, the literary hell episode with a question about dangers and advantages. It seems fitting to do that here too. Um, and I guess real briefly as we're closing, um, what are the risks that we run in our stories of beginnings and what do we gain from them? Um, Michael? I think the rhetorical question that's asking the Rig Veda is instructive here. Who really knows? Um, and in, in its way, that question parallels the question God asked Job during the courtroom scene of that book. And he, God, of course, says, where were you when I hung the foundations of the world? And, and the message, I think, is one of humility. We're given a revelation of the beginnings of the world, or in some cases, an imagination of the beginnings of the world. But we, we have to be careful when we're making doctrine, um, religious or scientific dogma, um, about it. Because we weren't there, and we can't really test these ideas um, as all of our listeners, I'm sure, know, there's a big debate in evangelical circles right now between old earth and young earth creationists and then theistic evolutionists. And you've got all three sides drawing lines in the sand with dogma. I've mentioned on this podcast before that there is a time and a place to call heresy, but I don't think this is the time and a place specifically because uh, no one was there when God hung the foundations of the world. And what's 
important, I, I suspect, is that we trust that he's the one who hung them. And, and Nathan got into that a little bit with uh, Milton and the sun. What matters is the sun was a creation of a sovereign God more than uh, who's revolving whom. Um, we can talk about the mechanics of how God hung the foundations of the earth, but those aren't as important as that it, he's the one who, who hung them. So I think the danger of creation accounts is a bit like the danger of fictitious depictions of hell, which is that we're in danger of cementing poetry into uh, into dogma. Hmm. And then vice versa, the advantages, being reminded that they're... Uh there was someone who laid the foundations of the earth. There was that, That's right. It, it shows the kind of magnitude of, of God. Yeah. What about you, Nathan? Well, I, I, I would go back to my assertion earlier uh, that the Bible is a book that likes to tell a story and then tell it again. And I think theologically, if we run with that idea, as I think we should, uh, we get a picture of God who not only does what Michael says and you know gives us this baseline assertion that it is the God of Abraham who created, uh, but also gives us a picture of our relationship to that creation where it's not simply a cipher. It's not an empty space where we can say nothing, but mm-hmm. rather because the Bible tells it over and over again, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Psalms, Proverbs, John 1, letters of Paul, you know, I would extend that out, you know, and say Augustine's account, uh, you know, all these wonderful artistic accounts uh, it gives us a picture of God who is gracious and who enjoys giving us a plenitude of meaning. So in other words, it's not that we can say nothing about creation. It's that we can say so much about creation. We should sing so many praises for creation that ultimately the bounty and the wonder of it overruns our capabilities. Uh, so that again, you know, I land exactly where Michael does. I think he's right that our proper response to it should be humility and praise and I'm and I, I'm I'm going to agree. Um, I I think by um, the tradition that I was raised in, um, and you know, largely to it, you know, still still hold, um, uh, t- tends tends to be much more literal in its in its in its meanings of the, its readings of the Genesis account. But I think. Uh, you know, like 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 Michael said, uh, there's some hills worth dying on, um, and some some worth having really good conversations on, and making the distinction between those things is important. Um, and so I if think, you're, uh, yeah, go ahead. To, I'm sorry. Yeah. So so for me, the the, the important thing, uh, I I think for people to get out of the Genesis accounts, uh, Genesis accounts is uh, God made the world. Um, it's uh, there, you know. There, there is a God. He is responsible for the existence of the things that we see, and we are responsible to Him uh, for what we do in it. Um, also, uh, you know, even though we may pick on Cadman for being and the medievals for being anthropocentric in their view of of the world, um, I don't think that's entirely. Um, uh, incorrect in the Christian worldview. Um, yes, heaven, uh, the the space is vast, and we are not at the center of it. But in some real way, too, um, man is the image of God in the world, and the heaven is our roof. And and these Genesis accounts uh, that that also have humanity in it in relationship to a God, um, I think are are a good corrective to 
to other versions of the story in which um, we're we're accidents or or as uh, as they tend to be in uh, well in in Ovid's Metamorphosis uh, when the gods are going to send the uh, when uh, Jove is going to send a flood, uh, the gods ask the question, well, who's going to give us sacrifices? Like that's the point of man. Um, I, I, think a, I think a Christian notion of Genesis helps to offset that. Anyway, fun conversation, guys. Um, a little bit longer maybe than, than uh, some other weeks, but we had much to say. Um, what, are we, what's, what have we got going on next week? Well, next break, uh, next week, next week, there we go. Uh, both University of Georgia and Emmanuel College will be on spring break. So yeah, yeah. Uh, at the request of my fellow hosts, uh, I've decided to take on a slightly lighter topic for next week. We're going to be talking about uh, youth ministry, the teaching and the ministering to adolescents in our churches. Uh, I have a fair bit of experience in it and some strong views on it, and I'm going to try to bounce those off of my fellow humanists. Uh, also, we will be recording on Thursday, correct? We will indeed. Yes. David will be uh, here at the uh, Christian Humanist Podcast Studios in uh, beautiful Tallahassee, Florida. I'm looking forward to it. Um, well, in the meanwhile, uh, I guess I'll talk to you later, guys. And uh, dear listeners, thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading us. Thank you for writing to us when you do, um, probing us with uh, questions to uh, get our minds going and uh, sometimes encouraging us with compliments that we deep in our hearts don't necessarily feel we deserve. To conclude, uh, goodbye from David Grubbs, from Michael, from Nathan. And uh, as Luther said, let your sins be strong, but let your faith be stronger. Contain their own